The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. John Fesco. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your kindness and your love that you have uh, given to us in Christ, in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that as we take these few brief moments to reflect upon your word, that you would grant to us light and understanding, that you would enlarge in the eyes of our faith, that we might clearly perceive and see the Lord Jesus Christ, rest, receive, and accept his work on our behalf. And look to the power of your Holy Spirit that we may live to your glory. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a sense in which I feel like a runner crossing the finish line this morning as we present, or I, you know, present here the last of the messages on the series that I began last semester on the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, just uh, in keeping with tradition, I'll go ahead and read those verses in question from Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 and following, and then we'll go into uh, this morning's devotional. Here now, uh, the word of God from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. The Apostle Paul, in his, uh, of course, famous letter to the church at Rome, told the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And of course, this is something that we as Christians have the responsibility to do to ensure that we're not being pressed into the mold of the world, but rather through the scriptures, by the power of the Spirit, through the application of Christ's work to us, that we are renewed in our minds. And that we, in many ways, live out what it means to be a Christian, uh, live out what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. But what we may not realize is that there are many ways in which the world presses in upon us and conforms us to its mold, and I think often in ways that we are even perhaps unaware. I think in particular, especially as it relates to self-control, I believe that the world has made deep impressions upon the church, upon our doctrine of God, uh, upon our doctrine of man, in ways that I think many are unaware. The world, I think, specifically tells us that self-control is scientifically impossible on a number of different levels. How often do we hear this in, in popular media, for example, and that people who commit crimes are not responsible for their actions. Courts and lawyers regularly look for reasons, for exculpatory reasons as to why people should not be held accountable for their crimes. 
It was their poor upbringing. It's their economic situation. Uh, It's that it was a moment of passion or rage. It was something beyond the person's control. How many times have we heard, for example, that it's really kind of pointless or fruitless to try to teach young people to abstain from premarital sexual activity because really it's beyond their abilities to control such powerful emotions. We, again, do not realize is that as much as we may reject such ideas, and rightly so, but there are other ways in which the, the, the world is pressing the church into its mold. And as I said, it really impacts our doctrine of God. We may not realize that it does. But then, correlatively or by connection, it also impacts our doctrine of man. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to explain how the world has infected our doctrines of God and man. And perhaps spend the bulk of our time looking at this because I think that we're really unaware of how this occurs. And then I want us to focus for the remaining time about what the Apostle Paul does have to say about self-control. So let's talk about the infection. There's, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a, a statement that is in the second chapter, in the first paragraph, that describes the nature of God. It says, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Without body, parts, or passions. And it's particularly that last word that our God, the God that we serve, is a God without passions... That is often raised as something that doesn't quite fit. We're a little bit uncomfortable with it. It makes us perhaps squirm. I've heard candidates on the floor of the presbytery as they are giving exams when they're asked, is God a God that uh, has passions or does not have passions? And I've heard uh, candidates take exception to that. And they say, well, no, God certainly does have passions. He does have emotions. I've read seasoned scholars simply punt on the issue and say, I'm not quite sure what to make of this statement. Moreover, when you take a look at popular literature, popular theological literature, for example, the title of one John Piper book, God's Passion for His Glory, how can we say that God is without passions? Is God really truly without emotions according to the Westminster Divines? And is this perhaps something that's a little bit embarrassing that we need to set off to the side and kind of walk away from it uh, as if we need to ignore it and say something different? Yet, beloved in Christ, I think this curious little word, and I think maybe the church's broader unfamiliarity with it, is but the tip of a massive iceberg that the ship of the Reformed Church has struck and is taking on water, and we don't even realize it. Let me, at least in brief, summarize this. I promise this is all relevant to self-control. In theology prior to the late 19th century, theologians spoke of the various forms of human expression, particularly in two types of expression. They talked in terms of our affections, rational and voluntary movements of the soul, positive responses to various circumstances of life, and passions. Passions are negative 
feelings and responses to others and circumstances, ultimately the result of the fall. But with the late 19th to early 20th century, vocabulary had changed, and theologians as well as even psychologists and what have you no longer spoke of affections and passions, but simply talked only of emotions. Classic theology had historically argued uh, that um, uh, appetites, passions, and affections were all different parts and movements of the will. In other words, the will of humanity, of human beings. And affections in particular were informed by reason. Whereas emotions are morally disengaged, bodily, non-cognitive, involuntary feelings. And where does this come from? But it comes from Charles Darwin. Darwin wrote of the same kinds of emotions that occur in animals, occur in human beings. Darwin once wrote, quote, Our descent then is the origin of our evil passions. The devil under the form of baboon, is our grandfather, end quote. In other words, what Darwin is saying is he's saying that the same types of emotions, morally disengaged responses to sensory input that you find in animals, is the same type of response that you find in human beings because we've evolved from the animals. In not so many words, my uncle is a monkey. My grandfather is a monkey. Darwin said it. Darwin and others concluded and contended that we cannot control our emotions, and hence they never, they stopped using the terms affections and passions, because affections uh, implies reason. It implies self-control. Passions are outside of our control. It is a result of the fall. In a word, affections are godly, passions are sinful, generally speaking. There can be some exceptions to those usages of those terms, but generally speaking, that's accurate. And so now, we within the church freely use the term emotion, and we're perhaps likely unaware of its origins or its entailments, whether we're talking literarily, philosophically, theologically, or even psychologically. How much has this shift in our vocabulary then shaped our understanding? Why shouldn't God have emotions and passions? Well, the reason the Westminster Divine said that God is without passions is because they're saying that he never flies into a sinful rage. He never gets upset and says, that does it. I'm messing everything up. In that respect, it is a good thing that God is without body part or passions. But relatively, we have to ask the question, can we be held accountable for our emotive responses? You see, in Darwinian understanding of things, the reason that they use the word emotion is because it's simply indicative of movement. Hence, no longer distinguishing between a godly response to something and a sinful response to something, an affection versus a passion. 
In other words, according to Darwinian evolution, according to uh, Freud, according to psychology, anger is simply like a sneeze. It's an involuntary response to a circumstance and situation around me, and it's beyond my ability to control it. One of the most maddening days of my life, uh, and I will never forget it as long as I live, is I think I must have sneezed over two or 300 times in one day. I'm not exaggerating when I say that my ribs were sore the next day. And I tried everything to stop. I had no idea what was going on. But it was just absolutely miserable, beyond my control. As far as I could tell anyway. Like I say, you know, I always tell you my scientific knowledge comes from Star Wars, so medically speaking, I, I had no idea what was going on. It was just involuntary. So is this really the case? Are we really subject to our emotions, morally disengaged responses to the various sensory inputs that we receive? Are we simply chemically conditioned that when you love someone, it's just the response of neurons and atoms? That when somebody hits you, the only response that you can make back is a chemically conditioned movement, morally disengaged response of striking somebody back? What does Paul say about all of this? Well, secondly, now that we've defined and explained and looked at the infection, notice that Paul here quite clearly includes self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul explicitly sets self-control in contrast to a number of negative passions. When he talks of the works of the flesh, notice he says sexual immorality. We're not animals. Well, we cannot control our behavior. Sensuality, jealousy, fits of anger. Those are all things that the unbelieving world engages in that demonstrate a lack of self-control. But yet Paul says, no, you who are indwelt by Christ possess the fruit of the Spirit, that democratized gift that goes to all who are in Christ, all who are indwelt by the Spirit, the ability to control your behavior and your actions. You should not engage in sexual immorality. You are in control of your desire. You should not engage in sensuality and tempting yourself with things that you should not look at, things that you should not touch, thoughts that you should not think. You know, so often this day, you know, the only thing that I know how to describe it is that we live in the CSI age, that, you know, you look and watch these various TV shows, and they've got bodies laid out, and there's all kinds of weird stuff going on, disgusting details, and yet... There, so there, it seems like that there's nothing that we can't talk about. But yet the Apostle Paul in, in, in his writings say that there are certain things that godly Christians should not talk about. We need not go into the details. They're simply unholy. They're immoral. We need not go into the details. Jealousy. 
When you see something that you want, when you see something that somebody has, you are in control of the ability and how you respond and how you feel about it. Fits of anger. How often do we fly off the handle? How often do we respond in rage? Something that I want you to do, and I, you know, perhaps, perhaps there's a research paper in all of this. Perhaps there's even an MAHT thesis. My gift to you, HT students, is that I noted this in terms of the ESV translations, so I don't know if this is true of all English translations, but the ESV translation never uses the word emotion. It doesn't occur. And quite regularly, it uses the word passion in a negative sense. In fact, right here, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul, Romans 6, 12, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Colossians 3, 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, am I saying that if you walk out of here and say, well, I have a passion for theology, that you're going to hell? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you can't use the word passion. I am passionate about a number of things. But understand how this language has been used. Understand historically that theological, uh, theological discourse in the classic tradition has expressed our ability to control our emotions in terms of affections, godly response, and passions, ungodly and sinful response. And that this is ultimately based here in what the Apostle Paul says in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, Self-control. In a word, beloved, remember this. I don't want you to walk out of here thinking in terms of sola bootstrapa, that, well, if you just grit your teeth hard enough, you pull up hard enough on those bootstraps, that you'll be able to self-control your way into whatever it is you want to do. To a certain extent, human being is capable of controlling quite a lot, but that's not ultimately done in the power of the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit regenerates us. We are indwelt by Christ. And it's the Spirit who enables us to exercise self-control. We're not tossed around by the waves of our emotions, involuntarily reacting to sensory input, like a, a, some sort of chemical reaction, like a bodily function like a sneeze, or like an animal who, who does not have rational and voluntary capacity, let alone a regenerate heart, to discern good from evil, right from wrong, or love from anger. And as Paul writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do not respond in hate. The Spirit of God enables you to respond with love. Do not respond with bitterness regarding the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances, the Holy Spirit of the living God enables you to control yourself that you might be filled with joy and that you would seek joy regardless of the circumstances, whether in plenty or in want. Do not think that you are incapable of responding in gentleness. 
and that the only thing that you can do is respond in, in anger or to respond with cruelty. No, the spirit of the living God says otherwise and that you have the ability to control how you respond. Beloved, in a word, you have the ability to control your responses. I cannot remember where I said it or where I read it. It was probably in, well, it doesn't matter where I read it. But it stuck with me and it still continues with me to this day. It says, only you can control how you feel uh, about other people and about the circumstances in your life. Nobody else can control that. Somebody treats you cruelly, only you control how you feel about that. Not the other person. They respond negatively to you. You don't have to respond negatively to them. You don't have to feel bad about that. You don't have to respond in anger. It's within your control. And not simply within your abilities as a human being, but rather within your abilities as a spirit-indwelt, Christ-redeemed person of Christ. The Spirit enables you to turn away from your sinful passions. The only way that you're going to be able to do this, beloved, is to feed your inner man. To feed your inner man. The inner man that Paul speaks of, that though our outer man is wasting away day by day, our inner man is being renewed. So set your sights upon what is good and pure, namely Christ. Pray for strength. You know, I cannot tell you how many times I would go into pastoral counseling situations where people in the congregation were suffering and were struggling with uh, spiritual problems, and I would ask them, are you attending worship regularly? Now, I knew the answer to that question because I didn't see them in church, but they would say no. Are you reading your Bible daily? Well, no. Are you spending time in prayer? By this point in the conversation, I knew what the answer was going to be, and they say, well, no. It's like someone saying, I need to do a lot of manual labor, but I can't understand why I'm struggling to do it. Well, are you eating regularly? No. So you're not eating regularly, but you expect to possess strength. That's the way many Christians approach their struggle with their besetting sins. If you do not feed your inner man, if you do not feast upon Christ through the means of grace, through word, sacrament, and prayer, you will not have the strength. You will not have the strength to respond with self-control to the various challenges and circumstances in your life. Remember this, beloved. If you do not seize control of your passions, your passions will seize control of you. Very simply. We've been redeemed from our sinful ways and from our passions. Through Christ's outpouring of the Spirit, we've been given the fruit of self-control. Never, ever claim that your actions are beyond your control. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And through the Spirit of God and the means of grace, seize control of your passions and use your lives and actions to glorify our triune God and edify the church of Christ. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have indeed delivered us from our sinful passions. And we ask, O Lord, that you would grant to us greater degrees of self-control. 
that we would respond in kindness and gentleness and love, that we would not uh, devolve to fits of anger, that we would not engage in, in sinful sexual immorality. Oh, Lord, you have made us in your image, and you are indeed a God without body parts or passions, and so we pray in this respect that you would grant to us the power by your Spirit to rule over our passions, for indeed that we would not rule over them by our own strength, but rather by the power of your Son living in and through us, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would grant this, not for our name's sake, but for the glory of your name and for the upbuilding of your church. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.